Uh, We are in the book of Ezra. Some of you might be saying, well, a few weeks back, back, I thought you said we were going to be in Nehemiah, and that is true. We will be in the book of Nehemiah in a few weeks. But as you may know from reading uh, history, and, and the more I thought about it and we prayed together as a pastoral team, we thought it would be wise and helpful to set up our time in Nehemiah by reading through Ezra, because Ezra really is, Ezra and Nehemiah really are one story. In fact, um, you may not know, but uh, in the early part of church history, Ezra and Nehemiah were together. They were split as uh, into two books uh, sometime around the fourth century because of the uh, the focus that Ezra brings and the, the focus that Nehemiah brings. So it's it's believed that Ezra and Nehemiah were one author. Um, most theologians, you know, think that it was likely Ezra who wrote this. Um, in neither book is there an author named, but uh, this is an excellent book. I'm excited for this study. I think this study is going to encourage our hearts specifically for how God works in and through his people, especially in times where we don't understand always what he's doing. This is a book that talks about the renewal of God's people, of God bringing people back from exile, from a country that was not their own, from a land that was not their own, bringing them back into the place that they once knew so that they would have their identity in the Lord, that they would have a people and a place to call their own. Um, so these, this one narrative, Ezra, Nehemiah, is this glorious and grand story of God's redemptive purposes coming to pass upon the people that he loved. We'll get to why the people of Israel were in Babylon in just a moment. Um, and we'll, we'll hear, here's what we're going to hear through this story, through this narrative over this fall. We'll hear how, how God enabled them to overcome huge obstacles. We'll hear how God, through his grace, called people and brought people up to, to lead and to help in the process when it seemed like there were no leaders to, to be found. We'll hear how God mercifully works even when we don't see how he's working at all. And I, I think, I believe, I trust we will be encouraged in our faith together as we look at the events of Ezra and Nehemiah. So, again, what about these books and what time frame are we talking about? Um, we're talking about a time frame in the 500th uh, BC era. Uh, in fact, there's a slide that I want you to see. Uh, it's an overview slide of these two books. So you see 539 to 433 BC. This is a long time ago. And you may, you, the temptation may be to think, how does this even relate to my life? How, how does this matter in my life? Hold on, we will get there. I trust you that you will see how th- the events that happened back in the 500s before Christ came, I trust and believe that you'll see how they matter today, how what we see about God in these stories, it matters today. So you see 539 B.C. to 433, um, and, and I broke it down so that we could see where we're going. Ezra 1 to 6, which is what we're going to cover today, actually. Um, the name there, Zerubbabel, he's He's one of the main protagonists of the story. He's, he's someone whom God appointed and used to really help the people of Israel. And the dates that, that Ezra 1 to 6 covers is like 539 to 516. What happens during those years are the temple is rebuilt. 
The priesthood is reestablished. Festivals are reinstated. The people of God come together as one once again. Now, during this time, by the way, uh, I just thought it was interesting to note that Esther is made queen of Persia in 480. So while, while these stories are taking place, there are, there are other stories that God is weaving. He's doing good work in other places uh, during these times. Ezra 7 through 10, as you see there, around 458 BC, um, there's a great move of God on the people of God as there's the, the public reading and preaching of the word of God. Once again, it's restored and established in Israel. And, and God uses that time to deal with people and their sin, and, and he does so in a gracious way. And then Nehemiah 1 through 13. And we're going to basically take one chapter a week and go through Nehemiah 1 through 13. You see the years there, 445 to 433. I know these years may not have a whole lot of meaning, but it, it just it's good to see it. On the screen, what happens in Nehemiah is the walls of the city are rebuilt. So in Ezra, the temple is rebuilt, but yet the city is still largely, the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, it's still largely in ruins. And God raises up a bunch of people, but especially Nehemiah to come help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Again, to, to give these people their identity in the Lord and in this city of God. And uh, we'll see how they are consecrated to the Lord. Now, it's true that, that the people of Israel will, were exiled a number of different times. Um, most notably in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar, uh, king of Babylon, came into Jerusalem and took tens of thousands of Israelites away to Babylon. Now you see on a map there that uh, there's a distance between uh, Israel, which is in the southern kingdom of Judah. There's a distance between uh, Judah, Jerusalem, excuse me, and Babylon. As the bird flies, it's like 500 miles. So just imagine yourself as part of uh, a Jewish person in Jerusalem. You were carried off in captivity. Again, no Luxo planes, no no cars to ride, and you were carried off for 500 miles to a city that you knew not of. You were carried off to a place that you didn't want to go. Against your will, you, d- you did not want to do this. And that, that map that you see there, that that's, it gives you an idea. 500 miles, these people were carried off into Babylon. Uh, this was a, a huge deal. In addition to taking tens of thousands of people captive, uh, the Babylonians, they didn't just take the people and extricate them out and go on their way. No, they, they destroyed the city. Most notably, they destroyed the temple. What is the temple? It's the place where God's spirit dwelt in the Old Testament. Solomon built the temple. David wanted to build it. You may recall King David. He wanted to build the temple. Solomon, his son, was the one who ended up building the temple. And on that dedication, when, when, when that temple was dedicated, the glory of the Lord was there. And now, and now in our time in history here where we are, the, the temple's destroyed. The city walls are torn down. The buildings are burned. I mean, this is just, just picture smoke and ash just rising up out of what was once the city of God. And God's heart grieved over this. This was the place for his people to dwell. And because of their persistent and ongoing hard-heartedness 
and stubbornness, he carried them off into exile, and the city was ruined. After about 50 years, this Babylonian empire, which at one time was really strong, it begins to crumble from within. Leadership within just begins to crumble. So the Babylonian empire uh, crumbles and the Persian empire comes to dominate over Babylon. You'll see that on the map above. The, this, this Persian empire was humongous. You can see how far it expanded. It was absolutely huge. And there was a king... Um, over the Persian Empire, and Cyrus, uh, King Cyrus, excuse me, uh, King Cyrus was over the Persian Empire, and his domain, as you can see on the map, extended over to Babylon. And so that's the background to what's happening as we're going to read in chapter 1 in just a moment. God's people, because of their persistent disobedience, were carried off 500 miles away from their home into a place they didn't know, into a language they didn't know, into all kinds of things they, they didn't know. And this all happened around 586 B.C. Now, again, why did God carry them off? Because of their persistent disobedience. Let me, let me take you back in Israelite history a little bit to, to explain how they got there. Because no one wakes up having the, the previous day loved and followed God and the next day find themselves being carried off 500 miles into a place they didn't want to go. It doesn't happen that way. It was a slow and steady decline for the nation of Israel. It began by Israel caring what their nation looked like. They wanted to have a king like all the other nations around them. All the other nations had a king with a palace and a place of rule. And so they cried to God and they said, God, we want a king. And God said, basically, you have one. I am he. He's like, no, no, no. We want a king that can live in a palace that we can see with guards and the whole thing. We want a king. And God didn't want him to have a king, any king but himself. But he finally yielded to their request and gave them a king. And for a season in the life of the nation of Israel, there were some good kings, most notably David, Solomon, again, who built the temple. Yet after Solomon, you may recall the nation was divided. They divided over uh, a number of reasons, but there was Judah in the south, the southern kingdom of Judah, and Israel in the north. And most of the kings of Judah and most of the kings of Israel were terrible kings who did not lead the people of God to love and honor the Lord. And the Lord had issued repeated warnings through the prophets for the nation to repent of these kinds of practices that they were giving into. They were giving into idolatry, setting up idols, false gods. It, 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 I mean, this is kind of gruesome, but it's factually true from history. They were engaging in child sacrifice and sexual perversion in a, a form of a denial of God. And there was this intermixing of, of Judaism with all kinds of other faiths so that what was there left did not appear to be what was in the Word of God. And so God caused destruction to come. He did this after repeatedly, over years and years and years, repeated warnings to the people of God. Listen to Second Chronicles. It says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, 
sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel. But what was their response? But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. So God in his love for his people, he kept warning the Israelites saying, hey, look, if you if you guys don't return to me, something is going to happen. Destruction will happen. You will come to ruin if you turn your back on me. He sent the prophets. That's the main job of the prophets throughout the Bible was to warn um, not just the people of Israel, they included others, but predominantly the people of Israel to turn back to the Lord. They had allowed sinful practices to come and rule their hearts. And so he sent these prophets. And what did they do to the prophets? They mocked the prophets. They didn't take them seriously They despised their words and they despised the word of the Lord. And after time, I like the way it says, until there was no remedy, God, God in his great love for his people would not continue to allow them to exist just as they were, turning their backs completely against them. And so out of love, he disciplined them and his discipline was carried out through the hands of the Babylonians. They carried them off into Babylon where they served in a variety of capacities. And actually over the 70 years that they were there, some of the Israelites served in significant capacities, Daniel being one of them. He served under Cyrus and Artaxerxes um, in various capacities. So it wasn't like they were in jail. They were, they were in that sense serving Um, But it was not their home. It was not their place. God was bringing discipline to his people. Why? Because he was angry? No, because he loved them. Because he loved them. So where we're catching this morning, and by the way, I hope I didn't bite off more than I could chew this morning by trying to cover six chapters, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, And we won't be reading all of it. Um, When we pick up chapter 1, What's happening is King Cyrus, who's Cyrus again? He's the one over the whole Persian Empire. You remember that second map? The big blob of the Persian Empire was just, it was just taken over. And he's the king and he's declaring something. So Ezra, keep your Bible open, by the way, today, because we're going to be reading uh, from time to time in the word. I'm going to read right now. I'm going to read verses one through seven. This is the word of the Lord. In the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns 
be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided with them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed them in the house of his God. So what's happening here? King Cyrus, who's king over all the domains, including Babylon, he recognizes that there are Israelites in Babylon, 500 miles away from their home, and the Spirit of the Lord stirs the heart of King Cyrus. We're not told a lot about that. I wonder if Daniel, because he served King Cyrus, I wonder if he may have uh, softened the heart of King Cyrus. But however you say it, ultimately King Cyrus's heart was softened by the Lord we don't believe that Cyrus was necessarily a, believer, necessarily a believer, though he almost talks like he does. He, in fact, later issues the similar thing for other faith groups to go back and rebuild their temples as well. Um, but what's happening here is Cyrus, God moves in his heart, and he says, hey, all you Israelites in Babylon, we know you're in captivity, so you can go back. You can go back to your home. In fact, God is has commanded me to commission you to go back and rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem. So what happens is that the Lord stirs in the hearts of his people to to get up and leave town and go back 500 miles and to rebuild the temple. One other thing that happened during the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 was that uh, not only did they tear down the temple and destroy the city, but Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the time, had said, hey, all, all those vessels that are dedicated to the Lord, the silver and gold vessels of use in the temple, I want them. Bring them here to Babylon. So all those precious things were taken back to Babylon. And in this post-return, in this return that's happening here, all that stuff is coming back with the Israelites into Jerusalem. So there's this, this great and mighty move. Again, we're talking, we're talking 42,000 people. It tells us in chapter two, 42,000 people are, are walking and moving 500 miles back to Jerusalem. This is a move of God. God is doing something. He's mobilizing his people for his glory and exciting things are going to be happening. So chapter 2, we're not going to read it. It's just a list of those who are accompanying the journey back. And it lists, I do want to call your attention to verse, um, to verse 64. It says, The whole assembly together was 42,360. So that's a lot of people. They're moving back to Jerusalem. And God's going to do some exciting things there in Jerusalem. Chapter 3. What is chapter 3 about? Chapter 3 is the account of the rebuilding of the altar and the first of a few waves of opposition to this rebuilding. So let me read chapter 3. Look, look there with me if you would. Chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. 
When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Yeshua, the son of Jazadak, with his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the people of the lands. They offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booze as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule each as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings and the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offering of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant they had from King Cyrus, king of Persia. So what's happening now? Uh, After Cyrus... The king of Persia said, hey, you Israelites, go ahead, go ahead back home to Jerusalem and rebuild your, your city, rebuild the temple, and I'm going to fund this from the royal treasury. So Cyrus promised to help this happen, and he's sending funds along with them that they may have success. In fact, it says they, they paid the masons and the carpenters from the royal treasury. So God so moved in a what we understand to be a king who doesn't know the Lord. He so moved in this king to supply all that the people needed to rebuild their city, to rebuild the temple. Isn't that amazing? That God uses uh, unbelievable things to accomplish his purposes. Uh, We'll see that as we go throughout this time. So they're mobilized. They make their way back to Jerusalem And, you know, they set up the altar. Now, this is so significant in the lives of the Israelites. Just to set up the altar whereby they could offer sacrifices. What were the sacrifices for? They were the sacrifices of animals was an acknowledgement of the sinful hearts that was true of the Israelites. They, They were acknowledging, Lord, we are sinners and we are acknowledging that, that we need someone to atone for our sins. And so we're, we're sacrificing these things according to the law of Moses, it says. So this is a reinstitution of temple worship. This was huge. These people had been apart from the temple for 70 years. This was a great moment in the hearts and lives of the people of Israel because God was bringing them back. He was warming their heart. He was making them newly aware, freshly aware of their need for him. And as they offered these sacrifices at this altar, it was huge. God was doing a work of renewal and restoration. He was bringing back people who were once far off, both literally and figuratively. People in Babylon, I mean, Babylon is known for its decadence, for its many pleasures. Babylon is known that, that there's no, no thing that you want that anyone's going to pose you to get. So however you want to get your pleasure in any form, perversion, 
beyond what you could imagine. That's what Babylon represented. And the people of Israel were not immune to those things. Their hearts were not so sold out for God. Again, why were they in Babylon in the first place? Because their hearts were far from God in Israel. God carried them there. So, so these were not, I mean, some, God always preserves some, but many of them were not living at all for the name of the glory of God. He's bringing them back. He's reinstituting temple worship. He's giving them a new start. It's like, you know, your life in Babylon, you know where that's going to end? In death. I came to give you life. So come on back and let's get the sacrifices. Get the worship of the true and living God. Let's get it going again. So this is a huge moment in Israel's history as God, through his amazing grace, these people weren't looking for him. They weren't pining to go back. At this point, they were assimilated into the culture of Babylon. Yet God moved in the heart of a king to push them back and reestablish worship. And this was huge. So the altar is repaired but the foundations of the temple were not yet laid. So let's pick up the story in verse 8. I'm going to read 8 through 13. Here it says, Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Yeshua, the son of that guy, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And they went on in their work. Verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Listen to this. Listen to how, how people responded to this. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But... Many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, they mean that means Solomon's temple, they wept aloud with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. So, so what's happening here? The foundations of the temple are freshly laid down. I mean, the walls aren't even up. It's just, it's just the foundations. And God had moved in the hearts of the people of Israel to such a degree that they, now that the priests were reestablished and the sacrificial system was up and running and the priests were doing what they had been called to do, the people of Israel were so excited that there was a great procession. The priests got on their robes and there were offerings to the Lord and with one voice they cried out to the glory of God. And those, perhaps those who had been Faithful to the Lord in exile. 
those who had seen the first house, the glory of God in that first temple. When they saw the temple being rebuilt, they couldn't help but weep. Now, it doesn't tell us the type of tears that they had. Perhaps, perhaps there were tears of two kinds on the cheeks of those who had once seen the glory of the first temple. Perhaps their weeping was, you know, such a profound moment of joy. You have those, right? When you're just so thankful for something that you, that you can't help but weep. You're not, you're not laughing and shouting. You're just, your eyes are full and they start coming out because you're, you're so full of gratitude and, and joy. I think you know what that's like. I wonder if that's part of what was happening in the weeping of those who had seen the glory of the first temple. And I wonder if also there was another part of their weeping, perhaps, that was like, Lord, this should have never happened in the first place. Lord, we should have been walking with you in the first place. Had we been walking with you, your temple would have never been destroyed. And we wouldn't have had to have 70 years in a place of desecration called Babylon. It doesn't tell us, but I wonder if the weeping of the old people who knew once the glory of the temple, if that was part of their temple. Well, and obviously there are, there are younger ones there who hadn't seen and they're laying the foundations and they're not weeping. They're shouting for joy because the Lord had made them glad. The Lord had rescued them from Babylon and he was doing a new work. He was rebuilding the city. He was giving them a place and a king. And the king wasn't Cyrus. He was giving them himself. And the Lord made them glad. And so as the foundations were being established, he was, they were with great joy. Great joy was upon them. So here, here's where the story now gets even more interesting. Because as there's this moment of great joy, um, there is also this opposition that arises. This is chapter 4. All of chapter 4 is about the opposition that they face. I'm not going to read it all. Um, let's, though, read the first six verses. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, he's kind of the head guy, and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of those folks. Notice how Zerubbabel responds. Verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to God, but we alone will build it to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Listen on. Verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. And now it says, How long? All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And historians say that's about 15 years. 
So these people pose as friends to the nation of Israel. Who are these people? They're the people that inhabited the land once the exile took place. Like, hey, free city and a free town, free area, free land. Let's take it. And they obviously didn't rebuild the city. They, they perhaps built up their own places. But these were not friends of Israel. They were not super excited that people came back to occupy the places that they were occupying. They were not super excited about uh, this being rebuilt. In fact, just the opposite. They were working to subvert this process. They were working to not allow it to happen. And for a period of something like 15 years... They hired people to frustrate the plan so that this temple was not able to be built. We don't have the story of what that exactly looks like. But can you imagine having a desire to do something and for 15 years not being able to get it done for the glory of God? Actually, some of you might say, I know exactly what's that, what that's like. You may have been praying a prayer now for a long time for the glory of God to be seen and experienced in your family or in some kind of way in your life. And you're praying a very honorable prayer. You're praying for for good things to happen, godly things. Lord, turn my son, turn my daughter back to you. Lord, cause my family to, to, to love you and serve you with all their heart and mind, soul and strength. Perhaps there are other ways that you're praying and you might... You might know what that's like. These years were hard years because the people of God wanted to do something and their plans, one after the next, were frustrated. Perhaps there were government officials that were involved in this, the frustration of those plans. Perhaps there was all kinds of red tape that they were experiencing. Perhaps there was direct persecution that they were experiencing. All we know is that they had a desire to build, and for 15 years, it couldn't happen. And so this was a hard time. Let's keep reading in verse 11. In, uh, so they write a letter to King Artaxerxes. Who is he? He's the king who came after Cyrus. So they write a letter to King Artaxerxes. Let's take it up at verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that they sent, these officials who were opposing it. To Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greetings. And now it can be known to you that the Jews who came up from you uh, to us have gone into Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. Do you see how they're characterizing the people of Israel? Using libel and slander. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, they will not pay tribute, customer toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Let's stop right there. So they're, they're writing this letter because um, they're wanting to continue to frustrate the plans. And they're seeking to incite the king, the current king, Artaxerxes, to stop this. Maybe the Israelites were starting to make some progress. So they write a letter, and the letter comes back from Artaxerxes, and it basically says, hey, you're right. These are rebellious people. Stop it right now. Cut off the work. That's what the end of chapter 4 is about. So the work is once again halted. And for years, it's not a short period of time, the work is halted. Chapter 5, God raises up prophets. And the prophets come, so people are discouraged. The Israelites, they want to build. They've been discouraged for 15 years. Then these 
these officials in the area send another letter to the king. The king says, yep, shut it down. And so they're discouraged. But in their discouragement, God raises up a voice. In fact, a few voices that speak the word of the Lord. Look at chapter 5. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Jerusalem and Judea in the name of God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Yeshua, the son of Jezedek, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Look at verse 5. The eye of the Lord, the eye of their God, was on the elders of the Jews. And the work continued on. So what does God do? In a moment when all seems lost, in a moment when, when the work is just frustrated, I mean, 15 years plus more years, perhaps another 5, 10, so let's just call it 25 years of no work, 25 years of frustrated plans. God doesn't abandon his people. He sends the prophets to speak his word, to lift their hearts, to cause them once again to come together to build the temple. And the eye of the Lord was upon them. Look at verses 6 in chapter 5. Actually, for time, I won't read this, but this this other guy named Tatanai, he sends a letter to King Darius. King Darius is the next succession of leader on the Persian throne. They send a letter to Darius saying, hey, um, do these Israelites have any business building this temple? Would you please go back and look in your records and see if this is permissible? So Darius, now God is moving in his heart, Darius goes back and, you know, what King Cyrus had prophesied or declared in chapter 1, they wrote everything down. And so he went back and made a search and Darius comes back and says, not only should this continue to happen, but I'm calling now on you, local leaders, to fund it. We've been funding it from our royal treasury. Now it's your turn to fund it, in fact, and make it happen. <laughs> so God works in the heart. Again, I, I, we don't have any story that Darius was a particularly noble or righteous king, but God works in his heart. He turns his heart toward the Israelites so that now the work is not only encouraged to go on. In fact, um, it's just interesting. It's history, but it's true. Um, look, at, look at verse 11 in chapter 6 now. This is how Darius responds. He, he says, I also make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, and the edict was that this work should continue to go on. If anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. Um, Talk about serious, right? I mean, God working through kings to ensure that his temple would now be built. That's what's happening in chapter 6. So this is three waves of opposition that the people of Israel have experienced. Three waves of opposition every time the Lord responds. The Lord sends his prophets. The Lord sends hope. And now the Lord is sending money so that the temple can be rebuilt 
once again. So we see that happening there. Now let me, let me pick up the story in chapter 6 and verse 16. We're almost done with the review. Then we're just going to say, okay, what does this have to do with your life today? Chapter 6, verse 16. The house was finished, and the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at this dedication of the house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lamb, and as a sing offering for all of Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their division and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as it was written in the book of Moses. So the temple in its glory is now rebuilt. The temple is prepared. The altar service is restored. The Levites and the priests, they're all doing what they have been called to do, leading the people of God in worship. And now there is this mighty celebration because, uh, again, God is rebuilding a people. He is, he is bringing his glory to Jerusalem. He has reestablished temple worship. The people are once together to get, once again, they're together with one voice. Let me ask you to, to drop down. Look at verse 22. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them. The Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. What I want you to see there is throughout all of this work, God was giving the people of Israel joy. In the midst of hard times, God was giving the people of Israel a joyful disposition, even in the midst of opposition, even when leaders were against them, even when kings shut them down. God's people were given joy by the hand of the Lord. So here's where I want to turn the corner. We've, we've heard the narrative. There's more to say, but we've said enough. What do we learn? Here's the thing. What do we learn about God in this story? And how does that matter for your, your life and my life? What do we learn about God in this story? And what does it matter for your life and my life today? Four observations I want to call to mind here. Number one, God is true to his word. God is true to his word and always keeps his promises. It says that the word of the Lord, verse 1 of the very first chapter, Cyrus spoke so that the word of the Lord would be kept. The word of the Lord would be fulfilled. Jeremiah had prophesied that, that this Babylonian exile was going to take place. He even named Nebuchadnezzar. And he said this will happen for 70 years. 70 years were up and God moved in the heart of Cyrus. Cyrus. God moved in his heart to do what not he purposed to do, not Cyrus, but God moved in his heart so that he would do what God purposed for him to do. See, not, not one of God's promises, not one of the things that he says ever falls flat. Not once. 
We make promises in this life, don't we? We, we make promises and we have great intentions to fulfill them. And we, we may fulfill them when things are convenient for us. And perhaps some of us, when they're inconvenient, we may still, in fact, be faithful to those promises. But not one of us is ultimately faithful to our promises. Not one of us. Because we all fail. We all, we all yield to temptations at some point in our lives. We have all failed. That is not true of God. Every single word that God promises, He fulfills. Every single one of them. God is always faithful to His Word. And I believe we, as a church on Labor Day weekend, I believe that we need to be reminded that God is always true to His Word. He will never say something that He will not accomplish. That's not His nature. He is never unfaithful. And so when you, dear Christian, man, woman, child, whoever you are, when you take God at His Word, it's going to happen. What I mean is, when he promises, he will fulfill it. It may not be fulfilled in the way that you are asking it to be fulfilled, but God is always true to his word. There is more that we could say, but let me move to the second observation. God uses all kinds of people, all kinds of people and all kinds of circumstances to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Almost every one of our songs this morning, as we sang during the opening set, preached that very thing. That while we experience things in this life that we do not know or cannot completely understand, God is at work in ways that we may not be able to see, but he is at work accomplishing his sovereign purposes. We've seen God moved in the heart of King Cyrus God moved in the heart of King Darius. It reminds us of the truth, by the way, doesn't it? Of God's sovereign power over every kingdom, over every kingship. In fact, uh, Proverbs 21 just reminds us. I I pray that this would encourage you. Though we, you know, read stuff that's going on in Russia and in Japan and in China and in other places of the world, we, we can read headline news and we can be concerned with what we hear and see, and we, we think about empires that are diminishing and empires that are growing and coalitions that are being formed, etc., etc., etc. What is true of any leader in this world that has ever lived and lives today is this, Proverbs 21. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. That, that is comforting, is it not? Any king, any ruler, anybody who sets themselves up in their country as, as people in charge, they're not in charge. They don't know. The Lord holds their heart, and he can direct it however he wants. That's who our sovereign God is. So uh, I'm not suggesting we don't ever look at the news, though you know I don't think you'd miss a whole lot if you didn't. But when we see the news, when our hearts may be struck with fear from time to time, when we pray, we are praying to the God who holds that king or that ruler. He holds his heart in his hand. He can direct it however he wants to. 
That's who God is. God uses all kinds of people and all kinds of circumstances to accomplish his sovereign purposes. He turned the hearts of the Israelites back to him. We'll see this next week in Ezra 7 through 10. God, God, through his word, reveals to the people of Israel how they have sinned and they, they repent and turn back to him and he's at work and, and he's raising up leaders to lead the people of Israel during this time. Zerubbabel and Yeshua and Ezra and Nehemiah and others. As you see in the narrative, God used even the opposition that they faced, right? He used it to help the people be delivered to a place of joy. Because when that temple was finally built after wave after wave of opposition, God gave them something. He gave them great joy. And in the midst of in the midst of an exile, again, think of yourself as a person in Babylon, a Jewish person thinking, I'm never going back to, to Israel. I guess this is my life now. I guess God has forgotten about us. I guess this is what life is going to be. No, God always remembers his promises. And he uses even the most unusual of circumstances to bring about his purposes in our lives. Let me illustrate it this way. I don't know if you've ever heard of this man. His name is Brother Andrew, or that's what we call him, those who, who read about him. And that's what his book is called, Brother Andrew. Who is Brother Andrew? He was a kid who grew up in Holland. He was a kid who grew up in a family that, that feared God. And in the first part of his book, he talks about how he loved his mother and father and his brothers and, and loved their fear of God and uh, kind of had his heart warmed to God in some ways, but in some ways... He, he, he didn't, and he went off to war when he was 18 years old. And two years into the war, during a battle, his, his ankle got shattered into a zillion pieces and, by a bullet, and he thought his ability to walk was over. He went to the hospital, and by the way, before he had left for the war, his family had given him a Bible and said, hey, these are the words that will sustain you and carry you. So read it. And he didn't touch it once. He was in this mission hospital. These God-fearing ladies were caring for him in his injury over this time of recovery. And he noticed something about these God-fearing ladies, that they were just joyful all the time. They were serving all the time. And so one day he asked them, why are you so happy? (laughs) And... Uh, one of his friends had brought his Bible and put it on his nighttime stand in the hospital and said, why are we so happy? You have the answer right there on your desk. And he, that, that answer alone turned Andrew's heart. And God used that bullet that went into his ankle and those months of recovery to make him born again. To make him read the Word of God because now that's Basically all he could do. God used an injury to turn his heart afresh to God. To give him a fresh beginning. I mean, his life was a mess. He was a drunk as a soldier. He was giving himself over to all kinds of things. He had wandered far from God. And God used a solitary bullet to change his life forever. Why do I share that story? I share that story because sitting in his hospital bed, 
I'm sure he thought, what in the world is going on with my life? God has forgotten me. I may never walk again. And do you know how God ended up using this punk 20-year-old kid who then gave his heart to Christ, who was then sold out? Do you know how God used Brother Andrew? Brother Andrew is... um, Humanly responsible. God did the work, but humanly responsible for getting more Bibles into Eastern Bloc countries in that time than than God used anyone else. He would smuggle Bibles into Eastern Bloc countries that were closed to the Word of God, and the gospel went forward as he used his life for the glory of God, risking his life time and time and time and time again for the glory of God as he took the Word of God and its hope to all kinds of places. God used this young man sitting in the hospital who thought his life was next done. And God resurrected him, making him born again and lived his life for the glory of God. See, I use that illustration because you may be wondering, dear friend, what God is doing in your life right now. You may not be in a hospital bed somewhere. In fact, you're not. But you may have some form of infirmity that you don't particularly like, that you didn't ask for, but God's at work. There may be situations in your heart that cause you extreme pain. And God is using that right now to turn your attention toward himself. And God is a God of mercy. Notice what he did to the people of Israel. Yes, he disciplined them. And he he disciplines us for our good. Yes, he disciplined them. But he disciplined them because he loved them. And you may be thinking, Lord, I, I don't know what you are accomplishing in my life right now. In fact, it seems to me that you've forgotten me. If God can use a bullet to resurrect from the ash heap of life, a life that to him seemed over, God can use whatever in your life to get a hold of your heart once again. To put you in direct connection with your Lord and Savior and to put you on a path once again for his glory and for his good. See, God works through all kinds of people and all kinds of circumstances to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And his sovereign purposes are good. They are good. Dear friends, be encouraged. You follow a God. If you're in Christ this morning, you follow a God who always does what he says. And who always accomplishes his purposes, even though the purposes or the circumstances may seem particularly overwhelming to you in the present moment. God is with you. The third thing we see, and I'll I'll just mention this briefly, is God disciplines his children for their good. We'll have other opportunities to see that through, so I'm just going to breeze right through that. But I do want to say, Consider the fruit, consider the fruit that came to the people of Israel because God loved them enough. God loved them enough to discipline them. Consider this fruit. Um, The law was once again revered. 
the people of God went back to the law of Moses, which God had given to them so that they would be governed by that. The law was not a burden to keep. The law was life-giving to keep. So through God's hand of discipline, which was hard, discipline is never fun, right? We agree together. It's never fun, but we bear up under it and look at the fruit that it produced in Israel. The law was once again treasured. The sacrifices were once again uh, instituted. The feasts and the festivals were those things that, that the people of God just like, oh, I have to do this next festival now we have to go to Jerusalem and no the festivals were fun I mean it mentioned the feast of booths what was the feast of booths about it was simply a time for the people to uh, erect simple structures that reminded them of how God preserved them in the wilderness so they would these families would live in these little structures and and had a a week-long celebration of God's faithfulness to them so these these festivals were not burdensome they were joy God gave them joy. And so, so here's a people miserable, lost in Babylon, engaging in decadent sin, far from God. And he resurrected them through his discipline and through his care. He gave these people a home and an identity. Fourthly and finally, God's merciful love for his people grants us a new beginning. And here's where I just want to bring it home to all of us. See, God in his mercy, he could have just wiped his hands clean of Israel, but he didn't do that. God is a merciful God and he remembers his promise and he fulfills his promise. And while he may bring discipline, while there may be seasons where God is working our hearts, and maybe you're in a time of discipline and, and you're bearing up under it, but it's not pleasant. God, in his mercy, grants us a new beginning. How do I know that for certain? Because of what Paul says in Romans 8.1. For everyone who is Christ, this is true, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean for you today? What does it mean? It means... That though perhaps this week you failed miserably. Maybe perhaps in the past year you've been, you've been allowing a pattern of sin in your heart to persist. And God by His Spirit is, is calling you to repent afresh once again this morning. This, this means something that, that God calls us to a new beginning. He made a new beginning for these people. They had sinned against him greatly, causing him to discipline them in Babylon. He called them back and brought them to a new beginning. And today is a day of new beginnings, dear friends. In your struggle in righteousness to put away sins, today is a new beginning because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, God is the God of new beginnings. That's the story that we're seeing unfold right before us. God not giving up on people. God not saying, I wash my hands of you finally. No, through his loving discipline, God brings his people and gives them a new beginning. I want to ask the worship team to come join me on stage now as we work our way now toward a close. And I I want to draw your attention to, to this. Don't 
give up. That's what this story says. Don't give up. Don't give up praying those prayers of faith that God has led you to pray. Don't give up hope because God is the author of all hope. The reason that we don't give up hope is because God is, dear friends, this isn't my word, it's just what it says. God is faithful to his promises. Amen. We can take that to the bank. We can consider the things in our lives that, that trouble us, sometimes deeply trouble us. And we can pray prayers something like this. Lord, I, I don't understand what you're doing here. It feels like I'm in exile. But because you are who you say you are, I'm going to trust you. I yield my life to you, Lord. The future is not mine, but yours. Because I know your character is good. I know that you're a merciful and gracious God. And therefore, though I may not always understand everything that's going on around me, I trust you. That's what Ezra is reminding us this morning. God doesn't give up on his people. God brings us back to himself. God calls us afresh to worship him. And in the process, do you know what he gives us? He gives us joy. He gives us joy. So that together we have that joy that carries us day to day. So I want to pray. Um, actually, could you, could you just close your eyes now and not be looking around? I, I don't do this often, but I want to pray for a specific group of people in this room and with, with eyes that are closed and with heads that are bowed. If, if you would identify with the need for faith, for your life and for the circumstances that you're facing. If you would say, yeah, I, I want to trust the Lord like, like that. No one's looking around. Could you just lift up your hand? If you would say, that, that's me. I, I want that kind of faith to be restored to me. Amen. God sees your hands and he knows your need. And so let's pray now. Lord, thank you for this story that reminds us that you don't give up on your people. Thank you for this reminder from Scripture, your holy word, that though your people had sinned against you, had walked away from you, and you in your love, you disciplined them, you, you took them away for a season you that was hard but you didn't leave them in Babylon Lord you brought them back you restored joy to them those old men who once saw the temple they were now weeping when they saw it rebuilt 
Because from the ash heap of that place, you were rebuilding hope. You were giving life again. Lord, some of us this morning, we, we need that hope to be restored in our hearts again. We need to be reminded that you're always true and faithful to your word. We need to hear that though the circumstances of our lives may be bewildering to us, that you work through various people and circumstances to bring about your sovereign will. And nothing is going to thwart your will, God, because your will is good and it is eternal and it springs from your mouth. And so it's going to happen, your good purposes. And I pray for those who raise their hand and any other in this room who may just identify, I need that renewal of faith. Lord, we lift our hands to you now. We, we raise our hearts to you and say, if, if you don't forsake the people of Israel, you're not going to forsake us either. Though we fail and we sin, and as we repent of those things and turn our hearts to you, Lord, we say, give us that faith. Remind us that you'll never let us go. Cause our hearts to worship you with joy, we pray together. Lord, we we know you're going to be faithful to do it. You're always faithful. So give us that kind of faith today, Lord. Because when we see you and what you're like, we can't help but turn to you and love you. We thank you for these things. We pray this together in Jesus' name.